Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn. Got to go quick. Saved by the... <laughs> Bell? Oh, by the Patreon contributor that helps support the Double Loop Podcast. So we can keep bringing this wonderful program to the ears of people all over the world. All right, what do you got for me? A friend to all. Is a friend to none? No, a friend to all is someone who contributes on Patreon and supports the Double Loop podcast. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry, man. We keep we're terrible. We're both zero for like eight with these uh, these things. Now we're just terrible at this. We are, and one that I had actually come across when I was trying to think of one, and I just thought, well, I've never heard of this phrase, but I think you'll like this. In a previous season, we had done bad puns and dad jokes <laughs> or sorry you had done bad puns no. and dad jokes. um he who would pun would pick a pocket wow which That's... basically means if you would stoop to pun jokes there's nothing that you wouldn't <laughs> stoop to because you're a thief and a rogue <laughs> and a degenerate it's from 1729 that's the view of pun jokes and dad jokes in 1729. Wow. Well, it's that a you're good a degenerate. That we've progressed over the past 300 years. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard this phrase, but I guess it was very popular. He who would pun would pick a pocket. Yeah, no, that's that's a great phrase. Like I said, maybe disagree with it, but uh, still a great phrase. Yeah. Uh, thank you to a couple of new Patreon contributors this week. Uh, first, uh, Thomas, uh, thank you for joining our group and contributing. And also earlier today, Natalie uh, also joined in as well. Thank you for uh, your contribution and hope that you enjoy all the extra content that you now have access to on Patreon.com. All right, Glenn, um, we're, before we get back into the making a murderer talk uh, that we promised, um, there's a there's a little now behind the scenes drama that's uh, that's occurred. Uh, yeah, so. <laughs> follow us on Twitter, please. Check this out. Oh, you don't even know, Glenn. You don't even know. I that's don't all, know. That's all you've and, seen so far. So, right, um, and don't care. <laughs> so I today, mean, it falls squarely. It does fall squarely in my box of labeled "Don't give a shit." Well, hopefully, we can just kind of move on from this, but. In an effort to expand the listening audience of the Double Loop Podcast, uh, I've I've been engaging in different forums and groups on Reddit and Facebook, and uh, so uh, today, when because this is now Thursday that uh, we're recording this, earlier today is when I posted the previous episode, and uh, then put a post up on uh, on our Twitter page. And on all these other groups as well, um, letting people know, hey, listen to our podcast. And um, oh my goodness, it blew up from there. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the, the tweet was essentially uh, how in this episode or the last episode, we talk about some of the good science that came out of uh, the experts that Kathleen Zellner had hired in, uh, namely... The results that uh, Luke Haig did, uh, shooting, uh, you know, looking at the the bullet trajectory through uh, through a skull, uh, the work that Palnick uh, Palnick, thank you, I almost had it there, uh, did uh, looking at the, uh, you know, the the microscopic trace evidence found on the bullet, how it was wood and not bone, as you would expect it if it had gone through someone's skull. In the first episode, we talked about the work that James had done on the blood spatter. 
pattern on the, the inside of the back door of the vehicle and how this and, and other aspects as well we, we thought was good forensic evidence. We did talk quite a bit about how we thought that those results were then used as the basis for unsupported conclusions by the attorney Kathleen Zellner. And, and, and in some way suggested that this proves he's innocent. Right, right. And, and in general, we felt that was an overstatement, that, right. that right. these results do not demonstrate Avery's innocence. Yeah, well, and, and I think we were pretty succinct in stating that Kathleen's position was if you can disprove any element of the prosecution's theory of how this happened, then the whole thing must be untrue and all unravels. And we don't subs- we don't subscribe to that philosophy. I did say, and I, I think we agreed in some parts, that maybe this new evidence does show that some of the prosecution's theory of exactly how this happened in an exact time frame, exact cause and circumstances of death may not have been accurate, but it doesn't necessarily prove someone innocent. And I think that's a very succinct point that we've stuck to. Well, you would have thought that I'd pissed on the Pope because holy crap, <laughs> did the did the internet unload its wrath upon, uh, upon our little podcast. Um, <laughs> so you, you saw, you saw maybe what 10 or 12 different comments that i kept responding to with a person mainly one person but a couple people on the on the twitter right no i mean i just saw the one and i would i thought you were very gracious you stuck to the message you're very and just very fair and un, you know just unemotional just stating the facts in our position and you know they're what they're entitled to their opinion of course well i'll have to show you some of the reddit stuff that went down <laughs> Because, uh, oh, there were, there were quite a few other uh, things going on there. So on Reddit, uh, if you're not familiar with this platform, reddit.com is um, just a collection of a bunch of message boards where you can go on and post stuff and then people can reply to your post and then you can reply to their post and it's just a series of posts. But then all the, the posts in those threads uh, can be ranked and voted up or down. So... Uh, it's not just like a regular message board where there's just one thread going through on multiple pages, but uh, this one kind of opens up like subfolders on a computer. And uh, anyway, so in Reddit, there's also now these, there's a making a murderer subreddit. And then there's, that's kind of the, the general one. But then there's these two camps. There's the Stephen Avery is guilty subcamp where all those people talk and get together and discuss their how they agree about that. And then there's the Stephen Avery is innocent, but what that's called TikTok Manitowoc. So many, many questions and comments were floated out there, uh, accusations that we are not um, authorized to opine uh, on this case um, because we don't have access to a RAV4. Uh, because uh, I used to have have access to that Rav Four, that very model, right? Uh, because uh, Zellner's experts uh, have a better CV than than we do, uh, and I don't know about that. <laughs> yes, yes, Doctor Langenberg, um, and uh, a variety of other uh, other comments. Uh, many many saying, you know, don't listen to to their their fellow redditors. 
uh, I tried to say, well, you know, maybe don't tell people not to listen, but um, if you have any questions, we'll be happy to answer. Uh, lots of questions got posed, and I tried to give our perspective. Uh, even especially, for, so it mainly came from that group. Uh, in the past, you know, if, even like the first season, our discussions, we got a lot of responses from the Stevie Avery is Guilty camp, and there were some of those those suggestions that we kind of shot down. I remember the supposed mm. fingerprint found on the cell phone. Yeah, I do. And and other things like that. We're like, no, no, that's that's not you know solid evidence. Well. Right. Um, after uh, you know going around and back and forth with that, uh, by the end of the day, um, I had been banned from the TikTok Manitowoc subreddit. Uh, oh, so you're banned! Oh, I am no. banned. I thought so, you were going to say you got banned from booted from both. That would have been that's that would have been great. <laughs> both groups are like screw off. No, actually, the the Stephen Avery is guilty people are generally have been posting positive comments, but then they'll try to go further and say, you know, how there's still evidence out there. Maybe we'll kind of get into some of these things. Um, Mm. There's still evidence out there showing that uh, Brandon was involved and that she was killed in the bedroom. And I just kept saying, I, sorry, I just, I'm not convinced by all that. And uh, I, I stand by that too. Uh, they kept trying to convince me, and I kept start, kept saying, "Sorry, that that's just not convincing evidence to me." Uh, the reaction was very different from the other side of just, you know, you're awful scumbags and go away. And so, and then by well, the, the half of that's true. <laughs> well, I went away because they 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 banned me. So, well, uh, in any case, uh, uh, that was the the drama that we we riled up on the internet today. Uh, but hopefully, those that uh, are still tuning in can still get something out of our perspective as forensic scientists uh, on on this case. Yeah, and you know, I, I I I do think we saw some really good positive elements in the reanalysis, and it made me really think about some of the things, made me reconsider a few different viewpoints, but again, I just keep coming back to, I saw nothing in here that proves innocence. And I didn't see anything in here that necessarily points to a different person. So, I mean, I mean, I know today we're going to get to the evidence that points to other people, allegedly, supposedly, and we're going to go through that. But the things that we had talked about so far did dispute some elements of the prosecution's presentation of the case. And I fully accept that and and in most cases i don't think we always know exactly what happened the prosecution puts forth a theory and if you can't refute it then sometimes it's almost taken as fact that that's what happened and i think the this new analysis is shining some light and maybe going well okay didn't happen exactly like that but that again doesn't prove innocence right i think overall that there's an important takeaway here that in my view the proper application of science is not to decide and be unmoved by no matter what happens, but to constantly be willing to reanalyze and uh, come to a different conclusion if the new evidence supports that. Yeah. Uh, I think that for both of us, uh, if new evidence comes out, I'm not quite sure what that would be, but if new evidence comes out, that's very strong and compelling, demonstrating evidence was planted and that uh, someone in law enforcement was the person who killed Teresa Halbach. If that evidence is strong enough, 
I'll change my mind. That's that's kind of the whole point uh, in forensics is to look at that physical evidence and uh, if new evidence comes in, well, then you should reevaluate your position, reevaluate your your conclusion and your opinion on the case. All right. And while I think we have certain bounds of ethics for our organizations about you know what conclusions we would make, Kathleen Zellner doesn't necessarily have those. I mean, they have lawyers' ethics, but I mean, she can certainly take that evidence and those conclusions and draw some fairly wild inferences from it uh, that supports her client's innocence and uh, that's that's what her job is to zealously defend and i know we we discussed this over the last couple episodes you and i had slightly different opinions on you know (laughs) the motivations and her and all that and i i personally don't have a problem with it in fact i i think she is doing exactly what she's being paid to do zealously defend her client and raise reasonable doubt and attack things and just you know muddy everything up so that in the end you end up with the quote unquote most comprehensive forensic analysis and uh ever put to a brief the right exactly okay great (laughs) good job i mean i i I admire that and it's fun to see this unfold but as we also have discussed while there's this entertainment side of it, there's this other very human side with human lives and people who, you know, were killed. All right. So um, moving into uh, this case, the the other possible suspects in this case, because if, if there's one thing I think that both sides can agree on is that Teresa Halbach is deceased and that somebody killed her. Past that, from what I've seen so far this week, I'm not sure what else can be agreed upon, uh, but uh, that seems to be at least a, a maybe the end of, of agreement, but at least something that can be agreed on. Um, so in the uh, the new season of Making a Murderer, uh, they bring uh, Kathleen Zellner brings up the cell phone tower data. Some of this stuff uh, I was having trouble kind of keeping track on the show, so. Uh, I went on to trusty Google Maps to help kind of get a bird's eye view of what's going on here. According to the cell phone tower data, uh, she pulls into the Avery salvage yard at 2.31 p.m. on Halloween. At 2.41 p.m., 10 minutes later, uh, she hits the call forward button, uh, which I'm, I'm assuming means forward on to voicemail. Yeah, I was just going to say, does a button have to be hit, or could it be an automated thing? In other words, the phone's not answered, so it automatically gets forward. Did it have to be a push-a-button? Uh, and that's the thing I'm not quite sure. In, in, this, in the documentary, they kept, uh, kept being referred to as pushing the call-forward button. And I believe I heard that from law enforcement and from Kathleen Zellner, but uh, I'm not 100% sure on that. Sure. But the important thing with that is that pinged to a tower in Whitelaw. Now, Whitelaw is a 20-minute drive from the Avery house, and it seems pretty clear from multiple different sources that she was at the Avery house right at that 2.30 time. Obviously, she hasn't driven all the way to Whitelaw yet, because uh, since she was just arriving, she would have to take the pictures, you know, finish up that whole transaction, start driving back. Maybe, though, that at 2.41, she is now on her way uh, away from uh, the Avery residence because it's being pinged to something further away. However, 
In the second season of Making a Murderer, Kathleen Zellner states that, quote, she's clearly on her way home. And I, I, I don't see how this is a clear thing. In fact, she goes further on to say that uh, not only is she on her way home, but it means that she's on Cuss Road. Now, Cuss Road is kind of the this back road that eventually kind of would, would lead towards that back area where some of her remains are eventually found. Right. So I've... I've now looked up at that uh, road and kind of how what where that is in relation to the cell phone tower in Whitelaw. And it is also about 20 minutes away. It is literally and, just barely closer than the Avery residence to this tower in Whitelaw. And, and point of clarification, her phone is there, not well, necessarily Teresa. True, but... Here's the thing. Kathleen is is using this white law location, the cell phone tower there, as proof that she is on Cuss Road rather than at the Avery Auto Salvage Yard. The Cuss Road and Avery Salvage Yard are very close to each other and are sure. both 20 minutes away from the cell phone tower. Yeah. Uh, it, it'd be like, I mean, now just kind of making the map bigger obviously this isn't this isn't feasible in real life, but making that bigger just kind of because you guys can't see anything that I'm showing you because you're just listening. But uh, imagine, if you will, um, if there was a cell phone tower in uh, Chicago and person says, oh, I'm in D.C., and then 10 minutes later is when the uh, the tower pings to Chicago and then someone says, oh, that's proof that they're in Baltimore. It's like, well, no. I mean, Baltimore might be barely closer to Chicago, but I mean, just a, just a guess. It really is not yeah. accurate uh, way of showing where somebody is. Uh, right. it, it this whole cell phone tower data. I mean, she could have still been at the Avery residence and had it pinged to that cell phone tower in Whitelaw. Uh, yeah. It really doesn't mean. Again, it's another piece of evidence that doesn't mean anything either way to show that. He is guilty or he is innocent, but is being used in this program to suggest clear, unequivocal evidence that he's innocent. What I mean, what what if part of you know the thing is, hey, I want you to go look at another car. Let's go drive out. Maybe Avery gets in her car with her. Maybe they drive out to go look at another car. Maybe that's where remotely away out on the salvage lot in the middle of nowhere. Maybe that maybe he attacks her there. Maybe that's where he murders her. Maybe that's where the blood spatter comes from. I mean who who knows? Uh, but if the phone had moved, I mean that that could be possible. I mean I get your point that it's not a precise location of exactly where someone is. But the phone could have been moving. Uh, well, absolutely. Or could have still been at her residence. The sure. the precision of the cell phone tower ping is not high enough to reach any conclusions from that data. One of the, the pieces of evidence that you know also kind of got me interested in saying, okay, now here's something that I find interesting and and could be grounds for a retrial. Uh, is that in the show, uh, Kathleen Zellner alleges that uh, there was certain evidence withheld from defense, uh, not released to them. And that is mm-hmm. specifically that Brendan Dassey's brother, Bobby Dassey, uh, had been uh, looking up uh, pornographic images on the computer and had a, a history log of, of searches uh, looking for 
you know, pornography that involved violence or uh, minors or just kind of bad stuff online. Now, in kind of looking through different evidence out there, not just going by what the show says, uh, I still have some question of whether or not this was released to the defense or not, um, or released, but in the mountain of other evidence that they had released to them, they didn't realize what they had, or even the prosecution specifically told them that there was nothing there, even though there, you know, there is something there that they could have tried to make hay over. Anyway, in my view, I'm quite, I'm not quite sure exactly who to believe on who had what information and when, uh, but uh, this is then towards the end of season two, one of the new suspects that Kathleen Zellner proposes uh, of who really killed Teresa. Right, and and I have to say that you know, um, I, you know, they showed on, in the series, of course, some of the, what the searches were and the you know exact words that were typed, which that was a laugh out loud loud moment for me when I was uh, because he was search uh, trying to search like deceased women. But he was spelling it diseased women. <laughs> his uh, his spelling was uh, not necessarily up to Webster or Oxford dictionary par. And some of the spellings were, I have to say, just h- hilarious to me. Putting that aside, uh, they were fairly horrific and fairly not, not normal. And she kept saying deviant. And I, I have to say, I mean, this is not, this is not your dad's pornography. This is... <laughs> I mean, this, this is, I mean, burned bodies, decapitated bodies, um, you know, like you said, you know, young girls, young burned, decapitated. I mean, a lot of, uh, oh, knife wounds, um, knife wound, you know, stabbing, snuff films. Like, I mean, all kinds of really, and then I have to say, I mean, had defense had access to that, that could have been very, very valuable for Absolutely. a defense. And, and, and Eric, I agree with you 100%. There is the grounds for the retrial is the, the discovery issues because, I mean, I, it fairly disturbing what the list was. And, and at some point I went, well, okay, was this just a search or two? And, you know, they logged, I think she said hundreds of hours of this, that this was right. not just, you know, skimming through or like, ooh, look what popped up. No, this was hundreds of hours. And that, that is disturbing. It's not forensic science, but it is disturbing when you start thinking about motive. And and then the other thing I have was, well, who else had access to the computer? But they exactly. showed pretty clearly that the computer was in his room, but I don't – in um, the brother Bobby Dassey's Bobby's. room. But does that mean that he was the only person that had access to that? that and that's another good point to bring up is – I mean, th- this is a large extended family and multiple trailers on a large, large yacht, uh, yacht, a large lot. Uh, so that that definitely is you know a a valid question of you know are we sure that it's this kid and not another kid that's there or another uh, person that had access to the house? In the end, I don't think that part matters. The part that matters, like you're saying, isn't a forensic question. It's a, a legal question of whether or not uh, this was withheld or hidden or not made available to the defense in some way. Right. And and if if that's the case, then yeah, absolutely. This uh, that's that's ground for uh, a retrial uh, because uh, that'd be a Brady violation. If anything is even potentially exculpatory, uh, defense must have access to that. 
that is uh, the rules of uh, uh, of the game and very clear rules that everybody knows and not something that you can get around. That's that's something you need to make sure that is uh, very clearly given out and made available to the defense. Yeah. And, you know, something else I noticed, too, and made a quick note about it. One of the things that they showed in the Bobby Dassey segment was that they were videotaping his room. And it reminded me that they, again, had original crime scene people who were videotaping the entire scene right. during their initial search and walkthrough of the scene. They showed some crime scene video. And you and I discussed this way back in the first making of a murderer, you know, and I having done crime scenes for a number of years, you know, the, 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 the videographer is usually the first, one of the first people in because they videotape every, at the time, videotape, uh, videotape everything for right. the conditions of the scene. And I think, you know, and I, we discussed, how risky it is for someone to plant or alter a scene when you don't know what is on film. We made this point that how if someone has already videoed the scene and you come in and tamper with things, and I think we're talking about this particularly with the key and some other things, that is so, so risky. I, I, I just can't imagine, especially when they know the process and that you have another county now. I think it was Calumet County who was doing the original crime scene search. That... That would be that's pretty pretty ballsy to come on, on into the scene and start changing things around when there is recorded evidence of what it looked like at your first arrival. Yeah, like we've talked about, there were multiple searches through uh, the salvage yard. It's a very big place, and different evidence was found at different times and during different searches, which we talked about back in the first season. How that was extremely problematic for the the, the rest of the investigation, but. That's that's one of the points I kept trying to to make in these online discussions is it's so easy to make this claim of planting evidence, right? But I don't think you, people understand what all goes into that, right? Making these assumptions that there's no evidence that's going to go into you planting that evidence, that you're not going to make a mistake like you're saying – move something or have it be, you know, noticeably different, obviously different from what was originally recorded. Or like we talked about last time, getting your DNA onto something, if you're going to be planting DNA and then what having to rely or, or introducing someone who later, uh, you know, has an alibi or is exonerated yeah. or removed from things when it turns out some other evidence comes forward. It's, it's crazy. You can't know that what you're planting is clean and doesn't have this other evidence. And what are you going to do now? Rely on the people up at the state lab having your back and hiding evidence for you? It's That's just not yeah. how the system works. It's just not. So going back to, to Bobby here for a question, uh, another quote that struck me from, uh, from, uh, from this section. Uh, Kathleen Zellner here saying again, Quote, the only reason that I can think of that Bobby Dassey would lie would be if the prosecution pressured him into lying. Now, <laughs> this is coming from uh, because uh, Bobby testified and part of, part of his testimony is what led to you know conviction for at least for Stephen about kind of when Teresa was at uh, his property, when she left, what he saw when he was right there. Glenn, can you, can you think of any other reason why Bobby Dassey might be lying other than the prosecution pressuring him into lying? Uh, well, uh, if he was 
the if he committed it and he was guilty specifically, he could have motive to lie. That's one thing that jumped to my mind immediately. I, it's one of these statements that you're like, what? It's just so obvious to to be able to respond to that and say, well, well, there's one reason. So there's Bobby Dassey as a potential committer of the crime. Uh, Kathleen then later tries to recreate how this could have happened because let's say Teresa left the Avery property, uh, turned and, and uh, you know drove off, and Bobby Dassey had already testified that he was leaving right around the same time. So let's just say that he drove off, caught up with her, flagged her down, and then attacked her on the side of the road with the rear door of the RAV4 open. That's how her blood you know, spattered into there. They do an entire recreation with head-mounted cameras and uh, stopwatches to make sure everything all the time is line up. All right. And then so the Avery blood is then later planted by the police and all the other evidence is planted and it's a continually plant, 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 but Bobby is the, the murderer. Oh, oh, hold on here. We're, you're getting way too far. <laughs> oh, sorry. Ahead here. Be, be, because under, under those conditions, I suppose that's possible. You'd have to have me accept that all this other stuff gets planted, but, and I don't accept that. So, okay, but, so suppose he's not the only person who's in this conspiracy. Well, and that's the thing is it doesn't have to be a conspiracy necessarily. Let's just say that he was the one that did the attacking and the killing and the burning. And then Officer Sergeant Colburn comes along and he's told to find that there's a car that matches that description along the side of the road where Bobby Dassey left it. And he goes over there, finds it, thinks, ah, I know this girl must be dead now because i found her car so i'm going to call up her ex-boyfriend ryan hillegas have him come out we're going to together get that onto the uh, avery property so we can frame avery uh, and then also break into his house to collect avery's blood from the sink drip it into uh, Teresa's car but also take some of it and just rub it with a Q-tip onto the dash, but also take some of it and leave it as a, as a dried flake and drop it onto the, the center console, uh, but not mix it in with any of Teresa's blood that's in the back of the car. Uh, and then we can get everyone to come in and find the car, and then we can plant the bullet uh, in the garage a few months later, even though we've already got evidence for, uh, of Stephen in the car. And then we can also plant his DNA on the hood latch, even though we've already got all this blood evidence of him in the car anyway as well. But along all those lines, we forget to plant any evidence against Brendan, uh, even though we've got him to confess. Oh, and don't forget using Teresa's chapstick to get her DNA on the bullet. <laughs> forgot about the chapstick. Right. I, I... That's plausible. So we're, we're just a couple of uh, forensic scientists, podcaster people that uh, watch the show, and uh, we're offering our perspective and comments on it. How dare you have an opinion? Show me your CV. We, we do not claim to have been researching this ongoing every day over the past uh, three or four or 10 or 12 years. And uh, I'm sure that there are parts of that, uh, that entire theory that we've gotten wrong. And, uh, but still... 
the number of steps to get that all to work out perfectly without making any mistakes, but then also doing it in a way that still leaves so many questions. I don't know. It, we've said this before, but it just doesn't make sense to us. Right. Or just like OJ or JFK, uh, the most logical answer is the person who all the evidence points to. How about we just go with that? Why don't we, why don't we just go that route? Call us crazy, but you could just do that. One last thing before we move into uh, talking about the uh, Dassey's appeal process uh, is the is the the day planner that they mentioned that yeah. Ryan Hillegas has. I have to say, I and I know you're going to explain here in a minute. This was astounding to me. I, I me this too. is I mean absolutely mind boggling. It's the one part in the series I went, what the hell? Well, so I, I don't know. I I don't know either. It really was uh, an intriguing part of the series as well. Again, not a for, specifically a forensic part of it. And I've I've seen some people suggest that the timeline that that Zellner proposes isn't quite how it all worked out, uh, and that it, it is still plausible that she took these phone calls, wrote down the notes, left the day planner there in her house, and then went out uh, on these runs to do to to take the pictures from all these other clients. But who, who knows exactly at this point who to believe on how that timeline all worked out. But still, if that can be tightened up a little bit and and presented uh, more carefully, that would be really compelling evidence to uh, to try to figure out how where that uh, day planner entered into the whole situation. Yeah. So just to clarify, as the show explores, there are these moments that, according to people that Teresa spoke with during the day, so that you have these phone calls that were made to her, and you can see the incoming calls, and you know they are estimating where she might have been or where she was driving and sometimes a person said you know i i I booked an appointment and teresa said to me hold on i'm driving i need to pull over and write it down so these little moments of at exactly this time teresa said i'm driving i'm writing this down so the theory is she had to have her day planner that she was writing these things in because when you see her day planner, these things are actually written down in the day planner the the problem is that the day planner was in the possession of the ex-boyfriend, Ryan Hillegas. Yes. That, am I saying it right? Hillegas? And uh, had the day planner been in the car with her, which it should have been according to the timeline theory, he, he should not have had it in his possession. And according to Kathleen Zellner, who I'm skeptical of the truthfulness of the statement. Uh, there is no way she could have gone home to have dropped off that day planner. It's just not possible. She had to have the day planner with her. If that is the case, if that is truly the case, well, it would appear that he has somehow has this planner in his possession that should have been in the vehicle at the time, essentially, when right before Teresa was murdered. On the other hand, if there is a very reasonable explanation such as she had time to go home and drop it off. Perhaps she did go home. Uh, and and that's all we'd have to hear. But, you know, when I guess she went to go talk to Ryan and ask questions and, you know, and they were going to go through like they did with some of the other folks. He I, th- I think he retained a lawyer and um, basically said, I don't want to don't want to talk to you. He he did not. Um, What's the word? He declined to to speak on camera. So she was never able to confront him or ask him any of those questions. So it is a giant question mark of how the hell did he get – well, two two things. How did he get the day planner? 
And if if his statement that it was in the apartment, how did it come to be there if she didn't have enough time to go back? And secondly, did she actually write these things down in her day planner? Is someone misremembering? Was she writing it down on something else? But that doesn't make sense because it was in the day planner. These appointments were theoretically being made that day. They have a um, a log of phone calls, so you know when that person called. So they, it couldn't have been like from a different day. So it, well, I have to admit that it's that is fairly mind boggling to me. And when we say day planner, what, what we're really talking about here isn't isn't what you're thinking of like a day planner. It it's a a, a piece of paper. It's a printout. Uh, she had like a a PDA Outlook calendar, right? Like a like yeah, kind of like an Outlook kind of calendar, and she had printed out like the the week onto a sheet of paper. So it's just a a loose sheet of printer paper with uh, you know the different appointments scheduled in there. Many of them were printed because it had already been in the calendar, and some were handwritten in because she took the phone calls and wrote those in. So it's it's a good question, but you think you bring up an interesting point how she went, goes to try to interview. If you remember, even just before that, uh, she had been talking to her legal aides about. Uh, her suspicions against Redant. Now, Redant mm-hmm. is the yes. guy that owns the adjacent property where some of uh, her remains are found. Well, he goes on camera with a lawyer, but goes on camera and answers some of her questions. Immediately after that all wraps up, she basically kind of rules him out uh, as a suspect and moves on to Hillegas and Bobby Dassey and, and others. Who won't talk to her on camera. Exactly. It, it seems like if you'll talk to her, then uh, she'll rule you out. If you don't talk to her, then you get a, you know publicly accused of, of murder. In this pressuring situation, I, don't, I saw images uh, of the interrogation techniques that uh, were used against Brendan Dassey. Hmm. Interesting. As we kind of wrap up this section on other suspects, there's a moment in the last episode, which is not coincidentally called Trust No One, where uh, Zellner's document that comes out, uh, part of what she needs in order to ask for a new trial is to show that there is another viable suspect. And kind of by the end, one of the most viable suspects that she goes with is Bobby Dassey. Well, Brendan, his brother, is in prison and is going through all of these appeals and part of a big part of the show that we haven't gotten to yet but a big part of it is all these appeal processes and his family his mom in particular uh, who is Stephen Avery's sister and uh, her involvement in trying to find new trials for both her brother and her son and now her brother's attorney has basically thrown her other son under the bus as the real killer uh, of and this stepfather. crime. And stepfather. And her husband, Brendan's stepfather, uh, is also then put into uh, another person that's added into this list of possible suspects. And she loses her shit. I tell you, that that moment when the mom calls Stephen Avery in the jail and it's all being recorded, and I, I mean, I was just... Yeah? 
I mean, I, I was talking at the TV. <laughs> Pretty difficult scene to watch. And, you know, she's she's swearing at him. She's yelling at him. Like, and he, I have to admit, in that moment, his uh, non-sympathy. Gotta look out for number one, I guess, right? Um, I guess. She, she, yeah, she's going on. Oh, this is now... This is now Bobby and Brendan's uh, mother is going off, talking about her how her husband was in uh, at the hospital visiting his mother uh, who was sick at the time. There's no way he could have been there, and and she's going off on you know all this, you know you know because this has been like the most analyzed week of this entire family's lives. And basically saying, Stephen, you should know better. This has been uh, what we've been saying all along for all these years. How can you let this happen? How can you let your attorney make all these statements uh, that you know are wrong? And you're right. He's just like, hey, got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Well, I, I I thought some of the most telling moments were, were in there. And, uh, well, yeah, it was... Uh, Difficult to watch, but she threw everyone under the bus. I mean, everyone got named as a potential suspect that you have these co-conspirators. You've got the boyfriend. You've got Bobby. You've got the stepfather. You've got the cops. Everyone's doing all this stuff. At least eight different people in some way conspiring or involved in this, but not Stephen Avery. He's innocent. Right. All right. A little time for a break here. So I would like to again thank our sponsor for this episode, which is Idemia, the global leader in augmented identity. Their technology has combined digital and cloud expertise to bring efficiency and next-generation user experiences to their customers. They've launched a new product called KSAFIS. It's a portable latent examination tool supported by the full power of Idemia's flagship MBIS matching algorithms. It's totally standalone, complete AFIS set up an all on its own doesn't need to connect to your main AFIS internet no security firewall see just permission it's it's a standalone AFIS in a laptop it lets you solve complex and difficult cases faster by searching latent prints from a crime scene against known prints specifically from that case in any format they can be footprints they can be morgue prints they can be tips sides joints doesn't matter if it's friction ridge detail it can be encoded and searched this tool will improve your casework efficiency and reduce erroneous exclusions. And we're even hosting a class on it. Uh, you can go to ronsmithandassociates.com. That's January 9, 10, and 11 in Anaheim, California. And you can check out that class as well. Uh, learn more about Idemia and KSAFIS by contacting us at info.usa at idemia.com. Solve your cases faster today with KSAFIS. All right, Glenn, as a little kind of teaser of what we're, we got coming out here in the future and kind of relates to uh, that little uh, break that we just had, uh, we've got a special treat lined up for our listeners, uh, and that would be uh, an interview and, a, and an episode going into some of the details of the Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker case. Uh, yeah. So definitely excited about that. Uh, that is one of the very first cases that made big news where the break came uh, in part from uh, an APHIS identification. Just like the MAGA bomber. <laughs> exactly. The technology has definitely improved dramatically since those uh, halcyon days of the mid-80s, but uh, the the case APHIS uh, that Idemia is, uh, is offering and it has out there as a product now uh, is, uh, is a big jump forward uh, in that same line uh, that started back there with the capture of Richard Ramirez. 
All right. So uh, the next part here, uh, before we we end out uh, this episode, and I think uh, we've got so many questions from uh, from listeners and writers uh, that we'll maybe do one follow up final episode of our making a murderer coverage. Uh, trying to answer a bunch of those questions. I just got to get those all collected uh, and compiled. And maybe this will be a uh, interview Glenn day uh, where I kind of get all these things together and, and uh, you know, also make comments, but uh, get your answers to all these di- little different nuances that people have thrown at us, people that have been following much more closely than we have uh, all, all the details of the case. Uh, but uh, Brennan Dassey, so... We've unfortunately left him out until now, uh, but Brendan Dassey, if you re- if you kind of think back to everything we've been talking about, there isn't really a lot of physical evidence linking him to this crime. Yet he was convicted, and that was based basically entirely on uh, his confession. Uh, also, just other witnesses that you know, place him basically with Stephen Avery for that entire day. So if Stephen did it, then and he was around Stephen, then he must have helped. Uh, but basically, it was just the confession. Yeah, and folks that have watched the series, you know, that is one of the more heart-wrenching parts of the series. Absolutely. You can see the entire thing online. I think it's in four parts on YouTube. You can – it's almost four hours of um, – uh, interviewing uh, by the agents in this case, and you can get the entire thing. I've watched it, Eric. I'm not sure if you have the whole thing, and it's um, it's it's difficult to watch. Uh, his his new lawyers, Laura Nyrider, who I mentioned we mentioned back in the first episode, uh, is is fighting uh, to get him released, saying that that was a coerced confession, and she lays out pretty convincingly uh, how this confession meets many, if not all, of the hallmarks of false confessions, especially with minors. Minors and mentally deficient. Yes, yes, which he would fall into both those categories. And, right. and she keeps referring to it as a special case, which the Supreme Court takes notice of special cases. So uh, they, they go through a little bit of history that I wasn't aware of, of, of how we've come to be in this in this uh, particular spot. In the past, there were the federal courts that could hear an appeal. And if you were convicted in the state court, uh, the federal courts could hear your appeal. In the mid-90s, after the Oklahoma City bombing, there was a new statute that came out basically saying that uh, the federal courts couldn't do that anymore unless there were some sort of special cases. And that was, it was, it was sold as preventing the Oklahoma City bombers from uh, appealing up through the federal courts. It was put forward as a terrorism bill. Now, what the effect that that's had is basically if you are trying to get post-conviction relief, if you can't get it within the state government, within the state judicial system of where you're convicted, then you're pretty much SOL because it's basically not going to happen through the federal court system. Yeah, and, and, and there's a lot of that when you hear from the different attorneys, which, you know, I found this pretty fascinating, the, the the federalism view that, you know, we're a state, we're a sovereign state, we're the state of Wisconsin, and we have a right to do with the people of Wisconsin as we see fit and as our jury system sees fit, and the federal government should not interfere with that. So there's a lot of federalistic views and why it's supported from especially states that have a very, you know, 
for example, Texas would be one <laughs> where one should not mess with the Texas. That's that's almost a, a, a saying that we should try to uh, use at the beginning of the show. Um, thou shalt not mess with Texas, the 11th commandment. Y- yeah, and it may seem strange to some of our international listeners uh, out there of, of the ins and outs of the American government system. But it, it is... <laughs> It is very strange because uh, America is basically 50 separate kind of countries uh, linked together. And since the beginning, I mean, this isn't anything new, but this is since the 1700s. There's been this argument of, uh, are we a federalist or an anti-federalist country? How Uh, do It depends on when we need money. We we want the federal government's involvement when they've got money for us. We want them to stay out of it when we want to make our own decisions that don't jive with what's going on in the federal government. That is what it comes down to. We want our cake and eat it too. So uh, Brennan Dassey's appeals were in the state court rejected. And then he goes to the federal court. And a federal appeals court hears uh, his case. And which is rare, apparently almost never happens, but was right. heard in this instance. But in 2016, the uh, U.S. magistrate judge uh, ruled that his confession was coerced, uh, granting this writ of habeas corpus, basically saying his constitutional rights were violated, and uh, ordered him released. And that's that's kind of the last I remember hearing about this case, sadly. is uh, I, Yeah, we talked about it on air. Yeah, and then kind of figured that was, he was going to get out, and then, you know, maybe a retrial, or you know, we'll kind of go from there. Well, And, you know, in, in, in fact, Eric, just a quick thing. We did actually read through that opinion a bit, and, uh, you know, I think we even commented on how it was clear that this judge wanted to overturn this case on many obvious common sense arguments but he just kept saying i can't legally i can't overturn the case but the one thing i can find is this coerced uh, confession that these promises were made and so on and so forth but i mean it was i thought i I think i made the comment or you did you know we just discussed how clever that judge was but it was very clear he knew at his core this was wrong but couldn't quite find legal ground to overturn it well, in the state uh, petition to have him to have Brennan stay in jail until the Seventh Circuit Court could hear their appeal of his decision. So I guess the way that works is a three judge panel first hears the arguments and then you know kind of makes their decision. And the three judge panel decided two to one in favor of Dassey to again have him released. So again, there's this, hey, he's going to get out because, you know, what are they going to do? Appeal up to the Supreme Court? Well, there's, I guess, another step in between there where they appeal up to the entirety of the Seventh Circuit. And uh, again, that like never happens. Cases just don't go up to that level. Yeah, this is what they called en banc, E-N-B-A-N-C, sort of in total where the entire uh, nine judges now get involved. And like you said, normally it should just be a three panel of judges. That way they can hear more things, make more decisions. And this actually really pissed me off because this to me was a massive waste of taxpayer money and just ridiculous. That Why even have this if you can just go, I don't like your decision. Let's have all nine hear it. That – that was really frustrating to me. That seemed like 
That seemed very silly and unnecessary. These three judges who are appellate judges made a decision. That's the decision. If you don't like it, take it up to Supreme Court. Don't go, well, I want a do-over now because I don't like the answer. No, it, it, that that seemed and, – and it doesn't change the level. It's still at the, at the appellate level here. That angered me. That uh, I found that to be very frustrating and a waste of time and just inappropriate government resources. I, I understand the the basic concept of it in that you can't have the entire uh, seventh court hear every case. Maybe it's it's better to divide things up, and most of the time, uh, the three judge panel can deal with it uh, because it, they do say that it's really rare that you go up to this full panel with the entire uh, seventh circuit seems unnecessary uh, in this case yes I, I think in my personal opinion is that the original magistrate judge got it right this three judge panel got it right and the full seventh court in their four to three opinion got it wrong i mean yeah they talked about his confession being coerced and all but it was mainly it seemed to also focus on whether or not the u.s court system had the authority to overturn uh, a state decision yeah it, it was very it was very much uh dante from clerks we shouldn't even be here i shouldn't even be here today and it seemed like the whole argument was we shouldn't even be hearing this case and i mean i i get it that at that level when you hear appeals at that level that it's kind of different but man, those judges were just, especially the ones that were uh, arguing against uh, Dassey. I, I, I just I thought they were terrible. Uh, I, I thought the whole process was brutal. That you have these attorneys who get fifteen, twenty minutes to make an argument, and the minute they open their mouths, they're just attacked on every side from these judges who are c- clearly have an opinion absolutely. and are just coming at them with all barrels firing. I mean, much like a, you know, Senate committee or, or, you know, some of these other kinds of committees where they're not even getting to make their speech. They're just getting up there and answering questions and defending themselves. Well, and, and to be fair, though, that that is the way appellate courts work. And that is the way the U- yeah. U.S. Supreme Court works is you kind of right. go in, you start talking, and they just start yelling at you. And and right. it's not a time to make your arguments before a judge. It's it's a time where the judges come in re- having read everything you've already written on this, and they want to ask you questions and kind of see how you respond on the spot. Yeah, I mean, but there's no rousing legally blonde speech and the slow clap, you know, <laughs> afterward. You don't get – there's no time for any of that. They just jump right in. You don't get any momentum. Yeah, and I think it's clear it's not a time to convince anyone. Um, <laughs> right, yes. It, it's it's the formality of the situation, and they're going to get it over with and then write up their opinion based on everything that's been written beforehand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, his appeal's now gone up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, there was some hope that it would be taken because uh, this question hasn't really been addressed by the U.S. Supreme Court in quite a few decades. But uh, so far, they basically didn't say anything. So it just kind of fell onto the, you know, we're not even going to comment uh, on it. And, well, they decided not to take it up. Right. I mean, they, they didn't take up the case. So uh, at this point, uh, Brendan Dassey remains in prison. Unless there's some sort of change, new argument, uh, it, 
it seems like he's kind of stuck there for another 30 years that he still has left to go. And, uh, something like that, that entire situation is just, I think you said earlier, heartbreaking. It really is. And I'm really on the fence of whether or not he was involved or how he was involved. If he was, he was still a, a kid put into a terrible situation by his uncle and man, uh, to be away for 40 years, uh, or so, uh, that's, that's rough and, uh, really unfortunate. Uh, if he wasn't there because there's no evidence really linking him to that, then it's even worse. So I, I definitely feel for him and, uh, his mom and that whole situation. And, uh, in a way I don't feel for, uh, for Steven and that whole situation, because I think the evidence is so much more clear cut on that side. Yeah. I'm with you on that. I totally agree. What, what's going to happen to that mom when Bobby Dassey gets convicted of the murder? Brendan is still there. <laughs> uh, so just Brendan and Bobby are in jail and Steven gets out, man. <laughs> Uh, he'd have to disappear because uh, I don't think his sister would uh, welcome him uh, home. Uh, but Awkward Thanksgiving. <laughs> That's terrible, Clint. That's just terrible. Terrible. Yeah, just terrible. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. You know, again, I was surprised, and it's hard to tell from the video, but, I mean, they, they did a good job of – showing both sides and supporters for both sides. But I really was surprised at how much public hostility there was when there was an announcement that Brendan Dassey was going to get released, that it was not clear that the entire public was behind that, or at least the town. So I I really was just surprised at the large numbers of people that were very angry and upset uh, that he was going to get released. Yeah, that's, uh, that's true that, well, I think it kind of speaks to the bigger issue uh, that we've seen online of there are two sides and you are either full in yeah. on uh, Brendan and Stephen both being completely guilty and it happening exactly the way that uh, the prosecution uh, originally proposed or they're both completely innocent and uh, every absolutely every little bit of evidence was planted uh, in this massive conspiracy and there is no room yeah. for in between. Yeah, and, and one of the Twitter people said this in one of these these posts to you, Eric, and I just I nearly responded with something <laughs> very angry and demeaning. Um, but they basically said, no, no, because you made the point, look, we actually kind of sympathize with the situation where Brendan Dassey and don't think he should have been convicted on this, and there's no physical evidence, and basically said, you know, we – we have an issue here, but we agree with the Stephen Avery conviction. And basically this person said, no, no, no. It's it, You're either all in or you're all out. If Dassey is innocent, then therefore so is Stephen Avery. And I remember thinking that is the most ludicrous thing I've heard. How is that? How 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 is that? I, I, I don't see how you can't have differing views on that. I I don't know. I, I think it's it's to, it speaks to the uh, the larger issues in our culture at this point where, uh, you are either full in on, on the godhood of the Trump and, uh, the, the roving bands of, of, uh, illegal caravans, uh, attacking you in the night and, uh, or you're full in on the, 
the the devil horns of Trump, and there's there's no in between. There's Every, no everything's polarized. Yeah, everything is now polarized. Uh, whether it yeah, be this, you're trial, either for it or against it. With it's the, the case for this trial. It's the case for you know the larger government political debates. It's the case for now everything. Everything is either black or white, and there are fewer and fewer shades of gray uh, or people even willing to acknowledge that shades of gray exist. Uh, it's, well, I heard there's 50. <laughs> I knew it. I knew that you're going to say that. Everybody <laughs> should know that there are actually 256. Everybody should know that. That's a lot of S&M, man. <laughs> Eight bits. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Okay. That's at least five times more than they're purporting. <laughs> All right, Glenn. Um, this is uh, it for our main part of the coverage. We're going to take questions in the next episode before uh, moving back into our regular, <laughs> less controversial topics. Uh, hopefully when we do cover Richard Ramirez, we don't encounter any any uh, um, people. He was framed, man. He was framed. <laughs> Pointing out how the 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 television footage of his drawings of pentagrams were all photoshopped or something, um, mm-hmm. but uh, in any case, uh, we are definitely going to encourage questions at this point. So we're going to take questions on Reddit, on our Facebook uh, pages. We each have one of those. You can find us through there or on Twitter at Double Loop Pod. Please engage us in discussion uh, because. That is really what we're looking for, is to to discuss in a reasonable way uh, the different <laughs> aspects of this case, some of which are uh, definitely raised questions, some of which are pretty clear and settled, and pre- some of which are pretty ridiculous. Conversations along these lines are definitely what we're looking for. All right, so as we wrap things up here, just quick plugs. I'm um, still got some classes that are coming up here in the spring. Uh, you can go to ronsmithandassociates.com uh, to look for those classes. And uh, actually, a new one has been put out there too. Uh, this one's a little more complicated. If you're interested, uh, reach out to me. It's 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 in Europe. Uh, we're doing uh, Alice White and I are doing a a, a co course together. Uh, in Switzerland, and if you're interested in taking an Ace V distortion class in Switzerland, reach out to me. Hit me up at Glenn at Elite Forensic Services. That's G L E N N at Elite Forensic Services dot com, all one word. And I can give you a little more info about the class and the conditions of it. It's kind of cool. It's kind of unique. Get a chance to go to Europe and also learn from uh, two fingerprint instructors, and of course see the amazing and talented Alice. And that class is, uh, there's two of them, May 13th or the 17th in 2019, or May 20th through the 24th. And it's been a while since I've uh, gone out there to teach my exclusionology class, uh, but that's going to be in, down in Florida, near Hollywood, Florida, uh, from Ooh. April 8th to the 10th. And then that same week, a uh, new gyro in Photoshop. And Glenn, we're going to... We're gonna do an episode here pretty soon, talking about more in detail about uh, Gyro and Photoshop, and that's gonna be April 11th and 12th. They're in the same uh, same location. You can sign up for one, the other, or both. And uh, uh, definitely looking forward to seeing people down there. Email us questions or comments, uh, or you know, just say hey, uh, Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com or Eric at RayForensics.com. 
And uh, you can go to those websites also to look up uh, what we're up to, what kind of classes and other services that we have to offer. Uh, follow us at Double Loop Pod, like I already said. Uh, every Thursday, new episodes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes. Give us some ratings, reviews. That helps uh, spread the word. Uh, consider contributing at Patreon.com to get some of that extra content, older episodes. Uh, and also, spread the word. You know, Let coworkers, let other podcast enthusiasts, uh, friends and relatives, uh, let them know about the the wonders and glories of listening to Glenn and Eric on the WLOOP podcast and everything that you can learn from what we have to say. The opinions on this show belong to us and not to any agency we work for. And with that, talk to you guys later. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. <laughs>